So as said earlier, my name is Mike. I'm the youth pastor here at Jericho Ridge. And uh, I always love being able to come up and, and speak to you guys. And uh, so we're doing our family inclusive series this summer, as we do every summer. We go through books of the Old Testament and do it in a kind of a family inclusive way. So we do a bunch of little different things. So we played Will It Float this year. We uh, had a game board. We had Risk set out and used Risk to tell the story. We had a couple of fabulous actors who came up and did some acting for us. And now they put their heart and soul into that. So they're both on vacation right now uh, off the continent. Uh, or actually one down in the States. Because uh, they just acted so hard. We've done a bunch of those kind of things. As we've been talking about the story of Elisha. Now... Elisha is the protege of uh, a little bit more well-known, the prophet of Elijah. Uh, and he's got a very strange story, which is why we've called this series Strange Kings. And we're continuing this morning with our family-inclusive theme. And uh, since we're outside and we're coming near to the end of summer, I thought uh, I would try to make a little bit of a camp atmosphere for us this morning. And we have a lovely campfire going in front of us this morning and and i decided my wife made me button up over top of it but now i'm going to unveil my camp shirt that i'm wearing today and the buyers came well prepared for camp sunday unbeknownst to them but i got my camp kakwa shirt on uh the camp that i have the privilege of speaking at for the last three years for one week and the buyers are very heavily involved over at camp kakwa and i know this is i think evan and the Daniel's first Sunday back this whole summer uh, after being up at camp all summer and Timothy's been out there a few weeks as well as has Irene and so and then we also have Danny who's around here or maybe he's up at Sunday Cinema now but he has been helping out with the scout camp uh, and so we're gonna have a camp Sunday a nice little campfire here uh, I know people have told me I should have brought a propane one but um, when I speak at Camp Kakwa their fire is kind of an odd space for me and I almost step in it all the time. So I figured this might be a little safer so I don't catch myself on fire. Well, we have our camp Sunday this morning is we're going to tell a little bit of a story from the life of Elisha. And it's a continuation uh, a little bit off of what Pastor Brad was talking about last week. And last week he talked about this guy named Naaman who had leprosy. And he comes to Elisha and gets miraculously cured of his leprosy. So Naaman was the commander of the armies of this nation called Aram. Uh, and he, uh, this nation was in warfare against Israel at this time. And they weren't fighting in direct warfare really, but Aram was putting out like guerrilla warfare tactics is what they were doing. And so they would uh, set up little raids in little small villages in Israel, or they'd set up on the road in Israel and ambush people, and they would go and they'd plunder, and they would kill, and they would kidnap. And it was through one of these raids that Aram acquired uh, the young girl who was uh, his wife's handmaid, uh, and it was this young girl who said to her uh, mistress that she wished that Na Naaman would go to Elisha because Elisha could heal him of his leprosy. Uh, and it was in, through one of these raids that he acquired this handmaiden. And so Aram is carrying out these raids all across Israel. And they start having success at the beginning, but soon they start having less and less success. Things aren't working anymore. 
So what would happen is the king would meet, the king of Aram would meet with all his officers and they would make a plan. He'd be like, okay, we're going to send a force to this place and we're going to attack here. But then God would reveal his plan to Elisha, who would then go to the king of Israel and say, keep your heads up in this area because the king of Aram is going to come and attack here. And then so the king would send words to, the, uh, to his officials, his commanders, and warn them. And the commanders would be on the alert and they would foil the Aramean plot. And then the king of Aram would gather all his officers and they'd be like, okay, we're going to go attack here. And again, God would reveal it to Elisha, who would go to the king of Israel and tell him, who would pass word to his commanders, uh, who would then foil the Aramean plot. So they're not having any success anymore. This is happening again and again and again. Elisha keeps foiling the plan of the king of Aram. And so the king of Aram gets really frustrated over this. And he gathers all his officers together in a room and says, okay, who is the traitor? Who keeps telling the king of Israel our plans? And all the officers deny it. And then one officer finally speaks up and he says, sir, it's not any of us. It's Elisha. He's a prophet in Israel. And he keeps telling the king of Israel all of your plans. He even hears everything you say in the privacy of your own bedroom. And the king of Aram is enraged over this. And so he makes the orders to find out where this Elisha is. And so the scouts go out and eventually word comes back. Elijah is in, or Elisha is in Dothan. And so the king of Aram, in his fury, sends a whole army to capture the one man, Elisha, out of Dothan. And so under the cover of night, the Aramean army and their horses and their chariots and their soldiers all sneak up and they surround the city. Well, in the morning, Elisha's servant wakes up. He's rubbing his eyes. He goes outside and when he clears his eyes, he sees that they're completely surrounded by the Aramean army. And he grows terrified. There's hundreds and hundreds of soldiers surrounding them. And so he calls out Elisha, and Elisha emerges. And the servant cries out to him, Oh, sir, what are we going to do? We're surrounded. And Elisha is completely unfazed. He just looks around, and he says, Don't be afraid. There are more of us than there are of them. And the servants is thinking, what are you talking about? There's two of us and hundreds of them. Even if we could muster all the forces that are in Dothan, it's a small town. There's no way that they will come in with an army large enough to fight this Aramean army. But Elisha prays. He prays, oh Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And then the servant is able to see into the spiritual realm. And he sees heaven's armies surrounding the Aramean army, horses and chariots of fire looking down on this army. And the Arameans are completely unaware of this heavenly army that's surrounding them. They just see the Elisha and the servant, the man that they've come to get. And so they start advancing towards Elisha. Elisha is still completely calm and absolutely unflustered and he prays again but this time instead of asking for sight he asks for the opposite he says lord please blind them and then the arameans are blinded and they can't see they're stumbling about surrounding elisha and his servant 
And so Elisha, being the nice guy that he is, decides to help them. He says, you've gone the wrong way. Follow me and I will guide you to the, people, to the person that you're looking for. So the Aramean army has no choice. They can't see. They're stumbling around. And so they follow Elisha. And Elisha leads them away from Dothan and he leads them right into Samaria, Israel's capital city at this time. And so he leads them through the gates into the center of the city. And when they get there, he prays again. He repeats his prayer for his servant. Oh Lord, open their eyes and let them see. And now the Aramean army opens their eyes and they can see and they find themselves in the middle of the capital city surrounded by the Israeli army. And the man that they're looking for is standing right in front of them. The tables have turned. And the king of Israel is sitting up wherever kings sit uh, in the back. And he shouts out, Elisha. And he gets really excited. Elisha, should I kill them? Should I kill them? His enemies are in his hands. But Elisha gives him a little eye roll and a sigh. And he says, of course not. They're hungry and they're thirsty. Give them food and drink and send them back home. And so the king listens and they have this great feast together. And they eat and they drink and then they send the Arameans well fed back home. And because of that, I love this story. This is just absolutely crazy. This is a radical response that Elisha is, is doing here. Now on the one hand, he is honoring uh, some uh, showing some honor in warfare when he does this. The king of Israel did nothing to capture his enemies. It was all God who did this. So the king of Israel actually has no right to decide whether these captives should live or die. It's God's decision. And the king recognizes this. This is why he asks Elisha, God's prophet, God's messenger, whether or not he should kill these captives. And Elisha responds with God's response. Of course not. Feed them. Give them drink and then let them go. And in a much deeper sense, Elisha is acting out one of the Proverbs, a proverb that we find in Proverbs 25, 21 to 22. It says, if your enemies are hungry, give them food to eat. If they are thirsty, give them water to drink. You will heap burning coals of shame on their heads and the Lord will renew you. This is uh, Elisha being subversive. It's the same kind of subversive attitude that Jesus himself showed. The Arameans are coming and they're raiding and they're plundering and they're killing and they're kidnapping. And every inclination of ours is to return that evil for evil. If they're killing our people, then we should kill them. But that's not what God wants. Instead, he asks them to show a great act of kindness to their enemies. How can this nation that is plundering and killing and kidnapping continue doing that when such a great act of mercy and a great act of kindness has been shown to them? And in fact, the Arameans do stop the guerrilla warfare, at least for a period of time after this action. The end of our section of scripture here says that the Aramean raid stopped. So this radical act of kindness. So here at 
Jericho, our broader tradition, we're in the Mennonite Brethren denomination, what falls under this broader tradition called Anabaptism. And a central value and a, a distinctive doctrine of Anabaptism is peace and nonviolence. Uh, it's a value for Anabaptists because they decide that they're going to look at everything in Scripture through the lens of Jesus. Uh, we view Jesus as the perfect revelation of who God is. And so everything we interpret should be interpreted through Jesus himself. And when we look at Jesus' life in the Gospels, uh, we see a man who is peaceful and nonviolent. And since we as Christians, Christ followers, seek to follow Christ and be more like Christ, then we too believe that we should be peaceful and nonviolent. That's the Anabaptist tradition. And now being peaceful, nonviolent doesn't mean that we let people walk over us. It actually could be a very uh, subversive attitude as we saw in our um, story this morning. By giving the Aramean army a feast, they weren't letting... Uh, the nation of Aram walk all over them and said they show great kindness to these people who have been doing great evil towards them and it makes Aram think about what they've been doing to this nation, this nation that's shown them great kindness and it convicts them. That's that burning of hot, uh, the burning hot coals over their head. It's the burning of a conviction of the wrong that they've done and so now they treat them in a better way. It's a non-violent solution to violence being done towards them. And Jesus uses this the same way many times uh, throughout his time on earth. There's one time where he's uh, out teaching and the religious leaders of the day grab a woman who's been caught in adultery and they drag him before her, before him, drag her before him. Uh, and they say, according to the law, we should throw stones at her until she is dead. What do you say? Jesus has been claiming to be son of God. This sin that she's committed is a, uh, an act of offense against God himself. And they're seeking a violent reaction from Jesus. She has done wrong and so she deserves wrong. But instead Jesus just stoops down and he starts drawing in the dirt. And everything's silent as they wait for his answer. And eventually he says, you who are without sin can cast the first stone at her. And just using those words, he's again pouring those hot coals. Conviction comes. They reflect on their own lives and realize that they have that same kind of sin that deserves that same punishment in their lives. And eventually one by one, they walk away, leaving her alone. Jesus doesn't act towards uh, the woman who's committed this offense with violence. He has mercy and forgiveness towards her. And using his words, a nonviolent solution, he diffuses the situation. One of the guys that I, uh, I really admire and respect is this guy named Shane Claiborne. Uh, he's a guy, he lives down in, the, the, in Philadelphia in the States and Right now, one of the, the big things that he's working on is he's working on trying to abolish the death penalty in the, in the states. And he also does a little bit of work with um, trying to bring about stricter gun control as well, but mostly uh, on the death penalty right now. And he purposely lives in uh, one of the rougher parts of 
Thanks, Brady. Thanks for trying. <laughs> the rougher parts of Philadelphia. And they, uh, I don't know if he still lives in this area because he recently got married, but I think him and his wife live in this kind of little communal living situation in the midst of um, the rough part of Philadelphia. He does? Thanks, Walter. Walter's always my fact checker. He gives me the thumbs up when I say something right. Um, so they, they, they live down there and and he has, uh, in one of his books, it's called Jesus for President, which is a great name for a book. Uh, he tells us a, uh, a story of him and this teenager that he knows is walking to a convenience store in Philadelphia. Uh, and then a bunch of these hooligan teenagers start following them. And they follow from a distance for a while, and they start getting closer, and then they start yelling at them and start yelling insults at them. And then they start throwing rocks at them. And then they start grabbing sticks and walking towards them. And they're just trying to ignore them and continue on their way. Well, eventually the teenager that, um, that Shane's with, oh, this is danger. I was going to kick this, but my uh, shoes are slip-on, so I don't want to peg Lauren in the front of the head. But watch out, Lauren! This is the equivalent of hitting a beach ball across the stage. <laughs> All right. Back to the story. Uh, the, one of the, the teenager that he's with eventually gets hit with one of these, uh, these sticks. And instead of retaliating, Shane turns around and he just starts exchanging friendly words. He introduces himself and, and uh, his friend that he's with and he asks for their names and they sheepishly give him their names. And then he says something along the lines of, you know, we don't really appreciate having things thrown at us or being hit with sticks. We're just walking to the convenience store. Uh, you can join us if you want. And just have like, a friendly conversation with them. And then they turn around and they say goodbye and they walk their way towards the convenience store. And the teenagers leave with their heads down, ashamed of what they had just done to these friendly people. Again, a nonviolent response. He just uses his word. He acts nice towards them and it diffuses the situation. They are convicted. They actually have to now think about the person that they're harming and that conviction comes uh, and they realize what they're doing is wrong and they correct their ways. One more story about this. this is a, there's a great video that I saw a while ago and I had to look it up again. Uh, it popped up on my Facebook and I'll have to post it on the Jericho Facebook page and maybe my own Twitter here as well. But it's about dealing with bullies at school. And so it's this guy who, uh, he's written a book about this, and he goes around to schools and he speaks about this. And one of the things he does is he does this thing called the Golden Rule Game. And he gets someone from the crowd to come up, and they play this game. And so he tells uh, the, the student that, uh, I want you to start insulting me. And just keep insulting me, and I'm going to try to stop you, but don't let me stop you. And so the first time they play, they start, and he just starts insult, or she starts insulting him, uh, and he retaliates. He starts trying to fight back, and it just antagonizes her, and she keeps going and going and going and going, until eventually he stops. He says, "Okay, good job, you win, but we're going to play another round, and I'm going to try a different approach." approach. So they start again. She starts insulting him. You're an idiot. And he says, yeah, sometimes I do stupid things. She's thrown off a little bit. But she says, yeah, you always do stupid things. And he responds, yeah, you know, you're so smart. 
you're so lucky. And then she says, yeah, I am. He goes, you're awesome. She says, I am, and you're not. He laughs a little bit, and he says, yeah, we've already established that. But you know what? My happiness isn't dependent on what you think of me. And I'm never going to say anything mean about you. I'm just going to say nice things to you. And to that, she can only respond, uh, okay. And he says, you're a sweetheart. She says, uh, no. And then he starts singing to her, which I'm not going to do. She's, he starts singing, isn't she lovely? And she has no idea what to do. She's completely stopped and diffused. See, the eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth, uh, mentality that we can have, doing evil for evil, uh, makes the world go blind, the eye for the eye. It just antagonizes. It continues this cycle of violence and vengeance and retribution. But acting nonviolently, returning good for evil, feeding enemies, stops the cycle. It makes, people f- makes the person think about you as a person and what they're actually doing to you and convicts them. It pours that burning hot coals over their head and brings about that conviction of what they're doing and starts them on the path to uh, changing the way that they treat people. And this is why Jesus tells us to love our enemies because it's actually a powerful weapon. And now leading this way isn't easy. In fact, it's probably a more difficult path for uh, our natural inclination is to, when someone does wrong to us, we want to do wrong back to them. That kind of strong sense of injustice, I guess we have. That if someone hurts me, then I want to hurt them. If someone says something mean about me, I want to say something mean about them. It's a training that we need to train ourselves to not knee-jerk react with something mean back, but to return with love instead of hate. And sometimes living that peace and nonviolent way can lead to our own suffering and can even lead to death. But we can face those things bravely because we have a God who did that himself. He came before us and suffered and died so that we can do that as well. We have a God who knows what it is to suffer and die unjustly. And because he did that, we're able to suffer and die with great hope. You see, Jesus, God in the flesh, God walking amongst us on earth came and he starts healing people and he starts teaching people and doing all these great, amazing, good things. But also in his teaching, he's being quite subversive. He's critiquing the religion of the day and those in power, the religious leaders, don't like him doing this. They don't like him subverting the system that's made them popular and powerful and some of them wealthy. They'd rather keep that power, keep that popularity, that admiration of the people, keep that wealth than change the system that Jesus is trying to change. So they decided it would be better for him to die. And Jesus knew this was the case. He knew what they were plotting against him, but he doesn't retaliate. He submits instead. He allows them to put a bag over his head and punch him and beat him. He, they, he allows them to whip him and spit at him. He allows them to take three nails and nail them through his hands and his feet. 
and hang him on a cross until he breathes his last breath. He allows them to do all of that. The Bible says that at any time he could have cried out to the Father and a legion of those angels, those heavenly angels that surrounded the Aramean army with chariots of fire and horses of fire would come and rescue him. And yet he did not do that. He submitted to it. And why? Why would he allow such suffering and death to come to him? Why would he not fight against it? What could such suffering and death accomplish? Well, Jesus takes upon himself all our own sin, every barrier that stands between us and God, he breaks down because he dies on the cross. All our mistakes, all the bad things we've done, Jesus takes upon himself to restore our relationship with God. He willingly suffers and willingly dies to allow us to come before a holy God as children instead of enemies. Violent retaliation would not have accomplished that. Only the non-violence and peace and submission that Jesus brings could accomplish that. And all because he did that, we're able to suffer and die for the sake of him because he died on that cross and was buried and three days later came out of that tomb. We're able to do that because he didn't just defeat sin on the cross, nailing it there and putting it in the grave, but he left it behind in the grave as he rose again and therefore defeated death itself. We can suffer and die because we know that death actually holds no power over us because Jesus has defeated it. We can suffer and die for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of the love of our enemies and of our neighbor because we know that God loves us dearly and when Jesus returns, that grave's not going to be able to hold us in there because we're going to rise with him just as he did. And violent retaliation would not have defeated sin, would not have defeated death. Only Jesus' willing suffering was able to do that. And the response he asks is for us to have faith. Faith in him, trust. Trust that Jesus' death and resurrection happened, that he accomplished defeating sin and defeating death by doing that. The trust that God cares for us deeply, that he wants to guide us in life so that we can live a life more full and a life that glorifies him. And trusting that even when he's guiding us on a path and that path leads us through suffering and could even lead us towards death is actually going to give us life abundant, life full. And we're able to persevere through that suffering and that pain because we know we have a God who understands those things. We have a God who suffered physically, dying on the cross, being whipped in torture. We have a God who suffered emotionally. He sat in the garden praying to God, please take this away from me in emotional anguish until he sweat blood. We have a God who's suffered relationally. When he was arrested in that garden, all of his friends abandoned him, leaving him alone. He suffered relationally. So we have a God who loves us deeply and knows the suffering that we go through. 
and we are able to endure those hardships and that suffering because we know one day that Jesus will return and his kingdom will be fully inaugurated on the earth. And one of my favorite passages in the Bible is in Revelation 21 where it says that the new Jerusalem, God's kingdom heaven comes down to earth and it says that there's no more crying, no more pain, no more death, no more sickness. It's a beautiful picture that gets me excited. And that's where our hope lies. The response to Jesus' action on the cross is faith, is putting your trust in Jesus, trusting where he is guiding you, even when that path is difficult. The worship team is going to come up and lead us in a couple songs of response, and we're going to have a prayer response team available on the sides here for you. Maybe you've never actually put that faith in Jesus. This is a time in which you can come to one of us on the sides and we'd love to pray with you, to lift you up before Jesus and help give you those first steps in putting that faith into Jesus. Maybe you've been following for a while and you're following the path that you feel like God, that Jesus is guiding you on and it's come across with some suffering and some hardships. Well, we've got a God who knows what that's like. And so please come to us on the side and we'd love to pray with you to lift that anguish, that pain up to God so that you can feel that peace that he wants to give you in return. Or maybe you're on the other side. Maybe you have some great things to celebrate. We love to praise God and pray and celebrate those things as well. So please come to the sides and join us for prayer as we do a couple songs of worship.